While so much of our international image and cultural identity is flooded with the images of red plains and ancient landscapes, the reality is that not too many Australians have actually ever ventured into the outback, let alone live there. With the vast majority of the population hugging the coast and living in highly urbanised cities, only about 30% of Aussies live in regional areas, of which only 10% of the nation's population actually call the outback home. And there is an awful lot of space between them. This tyranny of distance poses three main problems. Socialisation, education and healthcare. The Royal Flying Doctors Service has been working to address these issues for the past 90 years, establishing themselves as not only a vital service, but also as a romantic and almost mythic part of the Australian identity, although many of us have never actually had to rely on them. The RFDS helps over a thousand people a day, and in 2019 alone flew 27 million kilometres, making over 370,000 patient contacts. And all this service, all this connection came from the man on the $20 note. John Flynn was born in 1880 at Maliagul in the central Victorian goldfields. He was the third child of Thomas Flynn, a Roman Catholic teacher, and Rosetta Lester, an Anglican, the two of them whom were married in a Methodist church, making Flynn's eventual alliance to Presbyterianism less surprising. When he was only two, his mother died as a result of complications from her fourth pregnancy, and Flynn and his sister were sent to live with their mother's sister for a time. They later reunited with his father and the other brother, with the little family moving to the western suburbs of Melbourne. Though he grew up to be an urbanised city boy, much like the rest of us, his father often entertained him with stories of the bush, creating a strange and wondrous place that Flynn dreamed of travelling through one day. Flynn left school at 18 and at first trained to become a school teacher like his father, but by 23 he resolved to enter the Presbyterian ministry. With no money to dive straight into the courses, he entered the church via the home missionary centres, working for four years in places like Beach Forest and Birchin, before he passed the entrance examination at the Ormond Theological Hall at Melbourne University and began his four-year divinity course. Fun fact, though brilliant and far-seeing, Flynn was not an academic. He was less interested in learning Hebrew and Greek and more fascinated in developing his photography skills and visiting nearby bushland, twice spending time on Shearer's missions while studying. Flynn focused on applying the word of the Lord in a more practical manner, and this more grounded use of the good word showed itself early on as, before he even completed his studies, he set about writing a handbook for those living in the bush. Part of this was inspired by the Reverend Andrew Barber, a fellow missionary who he met at one of those shearer stations, who often chatted away with the young Flynn about all the little things that people miss or need when in remote areas. Things like legal advice, first aid knowledge and the such. Another part of this came from a meeting that Flynn once had, where he met a man who'd asked him for some simple prayers that he could carry with him, as this man had once been in a situation where a workmate had died, and after the funeral, nobody had any idea what to say or do. So they'd all just stood around his grave and sung around of, for he's a jolly good fellow. All this resulted in Flynn writing The Bushman's Companion in 1910, a publication he insisted be distributed for free. It's a small, easy-to-carry book that was a combination of a first-aid book, postage information, a calendar, instructions on how to make a will, how to make a bank account, songs, hymns, Bible verses, funeral services, as well as the general musings on how to live a good and moral life. At the very end of it all are the words to Old Lang Syne. 
So at the age of 30, Flynn published a book for those living in the bush. In the same year, he barely passed his exams, scraping through with a 57 in a very clear example that school marks don't measure everything. In 1911, Flynn was stationed out at the Dunas Commission in Beltana, a tiny town 540 kilometres north of Adelaide. These days, Veltana functions as a living ghost town, a historic spot that doesn't even have piped water. Comparatively, in 1911, Veltana was booming, with a population of 400. Within a year, Flynn had seen enough to know how perilous life could be to those in the wide open spaces. A serious injury could mean death. A simple injury could lead to infection and then death. Pregnancy could lead to death. Lack of access to vaccines and nutrition could mean death. Loneliness could mean death. Flynn began making himself known in the Presbyterian Church with his vocal request for funding for more medical outposts and easier communication between stations, things like setting up some sort of pen pal scheme. In 1912, he was commissioned to prepare a report on the conditions in the Northern Territory, writing two, one about the Aboriginal population and one about the white and he later travelled to Sydney and Melbourne, giving public speeches that painted a vivid picture of the needs of those out west. He'd already concluded that the nursing outposts, those tiny ports in a vast Red Sea, weren't nearly enough. They needed more than just somewhere safe for people to go. There needed to be a way of transporting those people to those ports to begin with. In 1912, the Presbyterian General Assembly appointed Flynn as the superintendent of its brand new Australian Inland Mission, or the AIM. The South Australian, Western Australian and Queensland Assemblies transferred their remote areas adjoining the Northern Territory to Flynn's care, stationing him at the Unadada Nursing Hostel. The Australian Inland Missions started with one nursing sister, one padre and five camels. Flynn was 32 years old and was now set on this course for the rest of his life. In 1913, Flynn started publishing The Inlander, a quarterly magazine that strove to give a voice to the people of the inland. It contained articles, documents, statistics and letters to the editor, as well as photos that he took himself, all combined to connect those who lived in the country and to inform those who lived in the city. In 1915, Flynn defied the convention of the time and devoted the first issue of the year to the Indigenous Australians. While Flynn acknowledged his ignorance in being able to provide a simple solution for the horrors faced by different Indigenous communities, he was surprisingly unafraid to place the blame of these ills on white Australia. Quote, A blot on Australia is shown in our frontispiece. There is no call for sensation. Sensation is too cheap. We need action. It is up to us to educate ourselves and mend our ways. We who so cheerfully send a cheque for £100,000 to Belgium to help a people pushed out of their own inheritance by foreigners? Surely we must just as cheerfully do something for those whom we clean-handed people have dispossessed in the interests of superior culture." End quote. He went even further, stating that Aboriginal people were not an incompetent race, nor were they unable to help themselves. This attitude was very much not in keeping with the general missionary statements of the time. Flynn's work originally created only minor ripples at first, though he was gathering a loyal amount of people around him who were now following his writings and his teachings with interest. Then, in 1917, 
A young stockman by the name of James Darcy died, and the true urgency of the need to create a mantle of safety reached the greater public. Darcy had been crushed under his horse, and then operated on by a postmaster with a penknife who was taking his instructions via Morse code. Despite the success of the surgery, Darcy later contracted malaria and passed away, while the whole time Dr Holland was struggling to get from Perth to Halls Creek, arriving only a few hours after Darcy's death. The whole nation, including Flynn, had been following this event closely, the death of one man devastating a nation almost numb with grief in the middle of World War I, but also galvanising it as people cried out for a solution. It was then that Flynn received a letter from Lieutenant John Clifford Peel, a young pilot with the Australian Flying Corps who'd been following Flynn's writings closely. Peel was the one who suggested using the newfangled institution of aviation as a solution to the tyranny of distance. However, Peel would never know the impact that his letter had, as 13 months after sending it, he disappeared while flying over France. His body was never found. While Flynn might have had some notion of using planes in this manner before, it was Peel's letter that cemented in Flynn's mind the necessity of connecting all his Australian inland missions with aircraft. It seemed such a simple end to the solution of this vast problem. But aviation, while it could fix so many issues, presented almost too many of its own to ever be taken realistically. Firstly, it was just as dangerous and even more so than taking a horse, camel or car, seeing as how these planes were made of canvas and wood, and in the hot Australian outback, the glue would literally melt and become unstuck. Secondly, it was expensive, and as Flynn had not even entertained the notion that people would have to pay for this service, sensible businessmen simply didn't see how it could be sustainable. And lastly, something Flynn was very aware of, a lack of easy communication in the outback meant that even if they had the aircraft, they would be pretty useless if no one was able to call them in the first place. Enter Alfred Traeger. While Flynn of the Inland might be a well-recognised moniker these days, it would never have existed if it weren't for Traeger of the Transceivers. Traeger was an absolute whiz when it came to wirelesses, transceivers, engines and all things electrical and mechanical. At the age of 12, he made a telephone receiver and transmitted from his house to his shed. Realising his potential, his parents scraped enough money together to send him to a technical high school before he studied mechanical and electrical engineering at the South Australian School of Mines and Industries, gaining his associate diploma in 1915. By 1925, Traeger was working at the Hennon Brothers Limited in Adelaide, handling car generators and fixing any electrical issues. He was also already inventing, having obtained an amateur operator's license for a wireless and subsequently built his first pedal transmitter receiver, this becoming the foundations of his later company, Traeger Transceivers Proprietary Limited. So by now you're probably expecting to hear how Flynn requested that Traeger build him some radios, but no, their first meeting was actually about a generator. Flynn was having trouble keeping his mother station out at Alice Springs powered. The generator there was used to being powered by a Dodge vehicle that was jacked up, a pulley on the back wheel attached to the generator. Needless to say, this wasn't the most reliable system, so when Flynn heard that there was a man in Adelaide who had a perfect, small, reliable generator, he made Traeger's acquaintance. Traeger later recalled their first meeting as such. Quote, Even before the usual how-do-you-do's had been exchanged, Flynn was asking me to sell it to him, and how much did I want? I thought I would ask for £30, but then that seemed like a lot of money, so I said the price was £29.10. 
I'll buy it, said Flynn. He took out his wallet and counted out the money. What I didn't know was that Flynn would have paid £50 for the generator had I demanded it. End quote. Also, £30 is worth more than $1,000 these days. Less than a year after that, Flynn invited Traeger to the Northern Territory for some radio experiments, and Traeger never looked back. Flynn challenged Traeger's skills in a way that they had never been before, with a monumental request. He wanted every remote corner of the country to be connected with a wireless that could be powered at any given moment. It had to be cheap enough for any man to afford, light enough for any woman to manoeuvre, and simple enough for any child to operate. Because yes, there were plenty of times children needed to make these calls. Traeger solved all of this by inventing his famous pedal radio, although it was actually the generator that the pedal operated that provided power for the transceiver. He enclosed the generator's flywheel and gears in a cylindrical metal housing, with the pedals on the outside and a car space to be screwed into the floor beneath the table, so that someone could be pedalling away as they sent their message off via Morse code. But while the concept was there, it would take a little more time before it became viable. For the next few years, Traeger divided his time between experimenting in his workshop in Adelaide and travelling the outback, teaching radio operation across the land. Traeger is just one example of the remarkable people that Flynn was able to surround himself with. As his successor, Reverend Fred Mackay, once put it, quote, In conversation, Flynn drew confidence. He never pushed himself and he always was keen to hear other people's stories about what made them tick. He didn't protrude his own importance and was a generous spirit to the extreme, which is why he won the confidence of other denominations and people of all shades of opinion. End quote. Two of these remarkable friends proved invaluable for the birth of the Flying Doctors, the first being Hugh Victor Mackay, a wealthy industrialist who was one of the first people to develop the first commercially viable combine harvester in Australia. The other was Wilmot Hudson Fish, a World War I veteran at the age of 26, who, in 1920, had just begun the venture of creating an airline that would service Queensland and the Northern Territory. In 1926, Hugh Victor Mackay passed away, leaving £2,000 to finance Flynn's aviation experiment on the proviso that the Presbyterian Church doubled that. The Church Assembly approved the experimental aerial medical service on the condition that Flynn raised £5,000, which he did so with the help of the Department of Defence's Civil Aviation Branch, the head of which was yet another follower of Flynn's writings. With this funding, Flynn was now able to turn to Hudson Fish and inquire about the usage of one of his planes from the Queensland and Northern Territory Aerial Service. While Qantas's involvement in the foundation of the Flying Doctors is very famously known these days, there seems to be a little bit of a misconception that Qantas donated their planes and pilots, though this was not totally the case. The AIM negotiated cheaper rates, true, but they did pay for the plane and for the services of the pilot. Because neither Flynn nor Fish knew if the air ambulance would be successful, Qantas only committed to a one-year contract, stating that they would provide both a plane and a pilot in Cloncurry, and that the contracted flying distance would be 38,000 kilometres to be paid at a rate of 2 shillings a mile, or roughly $8. There would be a rebate of 10 pence, or $4, for every unflown mile. The aircraft Qantas supplied was a de Havilland DH-50A, a wooden fabric biplane that was capable of carrying a pilot, four passengers, and more importantly, had enough room to lay out a stretcher. It was shipped from the United Kingdom and assembled in Longreach, its purpose made clear with the addition of red crosses painted on its fuselage. It was registered as VHUER and christened Victory. And you can see it on the old $20 note. 
While Qantas had been running for eight years at this point, the company was struggling badly and faced the very real prospect of going under before it had even really begun. As the author of The Flying Doctor Story, George Wilson, pointed out, quote, From Qantas's point of view, and it is not widely acknowledged today, the airline has something of a survival debt to which it owes to Flynn and the AIM. End quote. The very first pilot for the service was Arthur Affleck. While he might have started life working in a bank, in 1923 he joined the Royal Australian Air Force, earned his wings, the rank of captain and a commercial licence, before leaving in 1925, joining Qantas two years later. Affleck was flying with no radio, no navigational equipment beyond a compass and a map, and often found his way by simply looking out the window and following roads, rivers and mountain ranges. In fact, it was still so easy for a pilot to become lost in the outback that Affleck's successor, Eric Donaldson, developed a rather unique way of getting his bearings. If he happened to spot a station, he'd buzz over it until someone came out. He would then cut his engines and swoop low enough to shout for directions. The admittedly bemused farmer would hopefully point Donaldson in the right direction before he started his engines again and was on his way. This was truly the wild west of aviation. Being a pilot in those days required a certain amount of madness, and the same had to be asked of any doctor who wished to join this venture. 23 men applied, and though conditions were not sugar-coated, they'd be working in extreme isolation while dealing with severe accidents and emergency situations, there was a certain romanticism and wonder about the outback that attracted many who saw this as a chance for travel and adventure. The first flying doctor was Dr. Kenyon Welch, a Sydney sider nicely set up with a family and a practice, who volunteered to give this all up for one year and base himself in Cloncurry. Captain Affleck and Dr. Welch's first mission was a rather uneventful one. On the morning of the 17th of May 1928, Victory flew from Cloncurry to Julia Creek, 137 kilometres east. Dr. Welsh consulted a number of patients and performed two minor operations before they flew home, the whole thing completed by the early afternoon and hailed a total success. The doctors were indeed now flying. Victory could cover over 700,000 square kilometres, and that single plane was beginning to shape the mantle of safety that Flynn so desperately wanted for those in the outback. Affleck and Welsh proved a good team once an early conflict was resolved. Welch soon learned that because of the perilousness of flying in a wooden canvas single-engine aircraft, if Affleck deemed conditions unsafe, they would simply not fly, even if there was someone out there who needed them. The brutal truth was that they'd be no good to anyone if they themselves died in a crash, and if that did happen in the very first year of the Flying Doctor's experiment, the whole thing would have been cancelled. Safety was paramount. The thing that the Flying Doctors are most renowned for these days is their emergency or mercy flights, and the earliest one they conducted mirrored the fate of Jimmy Darcy, who died 11 years earlier. This time the stockman was called Jock McNamara, who, like Darcy, had been mustering cattle when his horse reared and fell, crushing him underneath. His injuries were significantly worse than Darcy's. One leg was broken and his pelvis was shattered. The only luck McNamara had was that he wasn't alone. His cousin Tom Lucas was there to give him as much aid as possible. He dragged McNamara to the shade, made him comfortable, gave him food, water and a gun, and then rode half a day to the nearest station to call the Aerial Medical Service. Affleck and Welsh immediately flew 100 kilometres to the nearest airstrip where they were greeted by members of the station and informed that Lucas and a few others had fashioned a stretcher out of an old iron bed frame and they were already heading back to McNamara. 
By the time the rescue party arrived, McNamara had been without pain medication for over 24 hours, and even worse, he'd been unable to rest that whole time, as he'd been fending off hungry dingoes of all things. Dr. Welsh quickly gave him the much-needed morphine injection, before the station hands carried him all the way back to the airstrip where Affleck was waiting. Jock McNamara made a full recovery. The very first thing he did upon being released from hospital was go to the first pub he saw and start raising funds for the aerial medical service, adamant that they'd saved his life and that they were vital to those living and working out west. In fact, the public have probably been the most consistent source of funding for the flying doctors ever since. The first year of flying was a resounding success, with Affleck and Welsh travelling 30,000 kilometres, seeing 250 patients and doing 50 consultations with other doctors. But this unfortunately didn't mean much in 1929, when the Great Depression hit. Suddenly, the federal government's support was cut completely. In response, those who were employed by the AIM all took pay cuts, while Qantas itself agreed to reduce mileage charges, and the state government of Queensland trying to take up as much slack as they could by providing £800 for the next year. But for a few years there, there was a very real possibility that this program, as successful and vital as it had proven itself to be, could fail simply from a lack of money. By 1929, Traeger had perfected his pedal radio, launching it across remote Queensland and causing a communication sensation. Suddenly, people could chat via Morse code to their neighbour 200 kilometres away, and the loneliness and crushing isolation of the outback was swept away in a rush of technology. Some of the older people still remember how marvellous it was, calling those morning chats the glass sessions, where everyone was talking about everything. The benefit to the mental health of those out west was incalculable. Traeger made this even easier in 1930 when he invented the Morse code typewriter before later moving into audio transmissions. In total, Traeger built over 3,000 pedal sets, linking them into a network that communicated between stations, missions and hospitals, opening the outback in a way that not even aircraft could accomplish. In 1932, Flynn did something that no one expected. At the age of 51, he got married. Jean Bird was a long-serving secretary for the AIM and had been heavily involved in the establishment of the Flying Doctors, stationed by the radio at Cloncurry and witnessing the very first missions. She and Flynn knew each other for years before they finally, and surprisingly, tied the knot, and while they didn't have any children, they remained married for the rest of their lives. In the same year that the Great Depression gripped the world, Australia struggled to recover from a seven-year drought. So while Flynn's experiment took root, the economic hardships meant that, at first, it did not expand. From a historical standpoint that Flynn could not have known, he'd accidentally chosen the worst time to set up the Flying Doctors, and there was still yet another obstacle. He still needed the approval from the church to expand, something that they were dragging their heels on a little, and if you want to know why, remember that this was at its heart still a Presbyterian operation, yet Flynn had made it very clear that he was happy to have anyone on his team, and to work with anyone to achieve his goal. Like Traeger, who was a devout Lutheran. In 1933, Flynn expressed these frustrations in a letter to the Reverend Barber, Quote, we must either shrink back into a mere preaching agency, or, as a dynamic partner in a national enterprise to help the frontier people, we establish ourselves as a power greater than when we had the isolated areas to ourselves. If the Assembly balks at the hurdle and refuses to invite everyone interested in joining the AMS adventure, I believe the AIM will shrivel into a selfish little runt. End quote. In 
Luckily for everyone involved, Flynn's arguments held and the church agreed to work with all, regardless of religious affiliation. In later years, Flynn's successor Fred Mackay would say, quote, John Flynn was not part of any system. The institutional things expected of an ordained minister did not contain or worry him in any way. He went out, not knowing whither he was going, making it a supreme, open-ended adventure just to sit beside needy people wherever they were. End quote. As technology advanced, so did the service. By 1934, they had achieved air-to-ground communication, along with the radio telephone. By 1939, Flynn's ultimate goal was achieved, as the Australian Aerial Medical Service now flew in every state. Then, in 1942, it officially changed its name to the Flying Doctor's Service, the prefix of Royal being added during a Royal visit in 1955. In 1940 and 1941, John Flynn, the man who barely passed his exams, was presented with two doctorates of divinity, an honorary academic degree in divinity from the University of Toronto and the Presbyterian College at McGill University, Montreal. The Flying Doctors have continually adapted and advanced. In 1942, they introduced the medical chest, a large box of medication that ranges from antibiotics to morphine. Everything is labelled with numbers, so if there is an emergency, a doctor on the other end of the radio can give instructions about what to do that can be very simply followed. Later in the 1950s, after many stockmen would report of pains being in their guts, nurse Lucy Garlick invented the body chart, a simple diagnostic tool that helped the injured to articulate exactly what type of pain they might be dealing with. The image of the body chart is on the old $20 note. In 1951, the established wireless network that Traeger had set up was utilised by educator Adelaide Mithke to establish the School of the Air, a radio school that helped educate children in extreme isolation, a world-first service that still exists to this day and was later implemented in Canada. Mithke was one of Flynn's good friends who shared his ideals and sought to make a difference in her own way. While the dream was now realised, the work for Flynn and his wife Jean never really stopped, with Flynn attending meetings of the Federal Flying Doctor Council up until one year before his death. Reverend John Flynn passed away in 1951 at the age of 70 from cancer. He was cremated and his ashes interned in Alice Springs, the ceremony brought across the wireless network and listened to by people in the most remote parts of the country. A year later it was decided that a boulder should be placed on his memorial, symbolising his connection to the outback. But really they could have chosen better than to take the boulder from Kalu Kalu or the Devil's Marbles, which is a sacred site to the Alurab women. After 47 years of negotiation, a boulder swap was organised in 1999 with a non-sacred boulder being donated by the Aranet people and the original boulder going back to its rightful place. Stories of the Flying Doctors have become a staple in the Australian mythos, and there are plenty to go around. Not only does the image of Flynn and the history of the Flying Doctors define one side of the $20 note, there are multiple books and TV series on the subject. In fact, they're making a brand new one right now as I record. And the Flying Doctors now even have their very own podcast that I thoroughly recommend that you listen to, the Royal Flying Doctors Service Queensland section. One of the most incredible outcomes from all of this is a German fan club. 
Established in 1995 by fans of the 1980s TV series The Flying Doctors, this club has raised over $25,000 in support of the scheme and continues to do so to this day. The three main goals of the RFDS remain the same as what they were when Flynn started, to bring healthcare, education and socialisation to the outback. These days, the Flying Doctors are much more than just doctors. They're also flying nurses, dentists, paediatricians, physiotherapists, as well as mental health professionals. There are 23 air bases and 77 aircraft, as well as over 140 healthcare road vehicles, and with more than 2,000 medical chests dotted across the land. They are also now committed to reconciliation, with their website stating, quote, the Royal Flying Doctors Service respects and acknowledges Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first Australians and is committed to improving health outcomes and access to health services for all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians." End quote. Flynn once said, quote, If you start something worthwhile, nothing can stop it. End quote. While James Darcy and Clifford Peel never knew their impact, Flynn lived to see not only the Flying Doctors succeed, but thrive, stating just before his death that his dreams had been fulfilled. Today, no one in Australia is more than two hours away from professional medical help, and to many, the noise of the small aircraft making its way across those endless skies can be the best sound in the world.